Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 44, The Screwtape Letters, Letter 22. Isn't she lovely? (laughs) Well, welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we are eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. Hello, everyone. And today we have passed a a particular milestone. We are now two-thirds of the way through the Screwtape Letters. Oh, that's fantastic. And in fact, I've started a community group at my local church where we're looking at the Screwtape Letters. This this book is is kind of worming its way everywhere. (laughs) Well, I'm already starting to plan for next season and some of the special months we're going to have. Uh, I, I, there's just too much to do. It, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, I'm planning on us having an apologetics month where we will speak to different apologists and they will talk about some of the apologetics arguments that Lewis used. Oh, fantastic. I'm also planning to do a Dorothy Sayers month because she's come onto my radar several times recently and I've really liked what I've read. Oh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. Of course, I know we've had Gina D'Alfonso on there. Um, I've actually been asked by the Episcopal Church magazine, Living Church, to write a review of that book. So that's on my stack. I'll combine that with a review of Splendor in the Dark with Jerry Root, his, uh, his take on Dimer. So very much looking forward to some Dorothy L. Sayers. <laughs> and the last month that I'm starting to plan is what I'm calling Ecumenical Lewis, And here I'm going to be interviewing folks from a variety of religious backgrounds who still find value in Jack's works. You know, there's a famous quote from Father Fessio, who is an advisor to popes and the founder of Ignatius Press. And he said, I think that what we should require as uh, as Christian education for everybody is the first three ecumenical councils of the church and all the writings of C.S. Lewis. And I think we (laughs) heartily agree. Now, at the time of recording, we've just entered into the season of Lent. So, Andrew, have you assigned yourself any Lenten reading? Actually, you know, I have. I try to add and uh, and subtract during Lent. My favorite joke is what I give up for Lent is something that I really enjoy. I give up going to church, <laughs> which I don't think is, you know, exactly the right way to go about that. Uh, um, yeah, I've I've given up news apps, so I've deleted all the news apps from my phone. Uh, I'll just kind of get the news as it comes to me. Uh, that wasn't bearing much good fruit. And in their place, I've replaced it with uh, a wonderful, wonderful Psalter. So I've got this facing page translation. It's the Coverdale Psalter, which is in the Book of Common Prayer uh, from the 1500s. And then on the other page, it's the Latin Vulgate. So I'm brushing up on my Latin. And then I'm reading Malcolm Geith's new uh, book uh, of, song, of, of uh, poems on the Psalms called David's Crown. So I've added that in and also a book called Meditations of the Heart by Howard Thurman, a famous African-American chaplain and, and writer. Nice. Yeah, what about you? I am reading The Gargoyle Code by Father Dwight Longenecker, who we had on the show uh, a few weeks ago now. Uh, And uh, aside from that, I am just uh, doing a decade of the rosary each day just to try and get back into the habit of, uh, of, of making that a regular part of my life. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I've been drooling over the work. There's a guy called the Catholic Woodworker. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know them. They've got gorgeous stuff. The deck, the one decade keychain. Yeah, <laughs> I've been. Uh, that's also what I'm doing for Lent. Is I'm trying not to to spend as much money, and so that's that's there in my longing basket. But maybe for Easter, that'd be a good present. <laughs> uh, one thing I came across this week, I just want to give a shout out. It's a YouTube channel by Father Jeffrey Doll. He's got a YouTube series where he's going through the Screwtip letters and giving an eight minute or so discussion of each letter. I'll make sure there's a, a link in the show notes, but I just wanted to highlight it because I love the ideas of pastors helping their congregations engage with great literature. Well, and you know, Lewis becomes such a great shortcut um, to all kinds of adult education, and I've been a lot of different denominations, and he has such appeal. Um, as we're recording this just last night, uh, as I mentioned, I started our new uh, community group. We had 15 people, which is pretty big for our parish, all there on Zoom, and everybody had read Screw Tape, and everybody was really excited. And Lewis becomes, for me, such an easy pick, uh, pivot into the scripture and into the applications of how we live our lives. And I'm grateful for our, our slackers who have recommended some of the letters for me to, uh, to, to tackle, and so we're certainly following along with that. Well. On to Song of the Week. Today's chapter is devoted to discussing the new girl in the patient's life, who seems to fit the description of Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. As such, one suggestion was one of my favourite wedding smooching songs, Perfect by Ed Sheeran. But in the end, I went with a different classic, one by Stevie Wonder, Isn't She Lovely? How can you go wrong with Stevie Wonder? Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? The answer is yes, yes she is, and Screwtape is not happy. Uh, I can't wait to dive into this letter because I think there's some of the heart of Lewis's theology right there. Well, what's our quote of the week? Yes, well, in a very similar vein to Stevie Wonder, it comes from the section of the letter where Screwtape describes the patient's new girlfriend. I have looked up this girl's dossier, and I am horrified at what I find. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian. A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, syllabic, mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread-and-butter miss. The little brute. She makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. Beautifully read. <laughs> That's great. I love that. My the, my runner-up for that, too, is one that I keep coming back to, especially now during Lent. And as we're recording this, it's actually quiet day on my seminary, at my seminary. So I was particularly thinking of this. Uh, here's the runner-up for the quote. Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that since our father entered hell no longer ago than humans, reckoning in light years could express no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been preoccupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. And at this point in the Max McLean show, they start playing Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a great reminder. Maybe our listeners and we can take this Lent to integrate silence and very purposefully uh, selected music um, as, we, as we go forward. Yes, and avoid the grand dynamism of noise. 
What's our drink of the week? Oh, so our drink of the week is uh, the last of my little samplers from the the kit that um that Matt gave me at the uh, at the start of the season, and it's an Indian Scotch. It's called Amrut. It's an Indian single malt whiskey, and uh, it's made from select Indian barley, nurtured by waters flowing from the great Himalayas. So that's promising. And I went looking for this in the Michael Jackson book, and this particular one wasn't there. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm finding that the the Jackson book isn't as completist as I'd like. Um, but uh, you did find a description. It's gold and pale straw, and that certainly checks out. Yeah, that's what it looks like up against the light. Let's see, the nose, orange segment, and lemon peel steal the show. Almond or marzipan creeps in in the middle before cereal grain like Cheerios rounds out the finish. <laughs> so this is why it's a breakfast scotch. <laughs> I think I maybe get the Cheerios. What do you get the citrus? I get the marzipan. When we when we were pouring this out just before we started recording, I said this reminds me of something. I can't quite work out what it is. I think it's marzipan. Yeah. Yeah. Which is much big, bigger in England, I think, than it is in the States. Oh. We've been watching not only the Great British Baking Show, but the Great British Menu. Uh, which is this competition, and we're convinced that you Brits have nothing to eat for dessert but strawberries and rhubarb. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. All right. The palate, it says, the mouthfeel feels light. It comes off hot at first from the alcohol, but on the other hand, it's a quick burn that rounds out. Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't say it's that quick, though. That lasted a while. It did. It comes off as very phenolic. I don't know what that means. It moves into smoky beef jerky. I'm not sure. You get the orange from the nose on the palate and a little sweet honey. The dram is woody, and it, as it moves to the finish, it's reminiscent of black liquor. I, this one definitely needs a drop of water. Let me try that. Mmm. <laughs> water really, really helps. Soften it. Yeah, I think it, I think, I think it definitely needs that. Uh, I've just looked up phenol phenolic. And it relates to fennel, carbolic acid. Okay, great. Not fennel, as, the spice. <laughs> as, as always, Scotch descriptions really, really own the fact that Scotch is kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So with this new drink, let's toast one of our newest gold level supporters from Patreon. Today we are toasting Gillis Klotz. So here's to you, Gillis. Cheers. Cheers. So on to letter 22, which was first published in The Guardian on the 26th of September, 1941. Here is my 100-word summary. In addition to threatening his nephew, Screwtape rants about the patient's new girlfriend, a Christian lady of great virtue. This is a disaster for Wormwood. Even worse, she also has a wonderful, supportive family and set of friends. Unable to accept their loving behavior at face value, Screwtape wonders what they are really up to. <laughs> of course he does. Screwtape rails against God, whom he considers a great hedonist. He laments that they have to twist everything before it can be used towards their own ends. The letter is concluded by Screwtape's secretary, as Screwtape has accidentally transformed into a centipede. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So, kicks off with Screwtape offering some not very veiled threats in response to Wormwood's attempts to get his uncle in trouble with Hell's secret police over charges of heresy. 
Screwtape includes in his letter this week a booklet about the new House of Correction for Incompetent Tempters. Screwtape comments, It is profusely illustrated, and you will not find a dull page in it. We find that Screwtape would be united in an indissoluble embrace. And that reminds us of letter 8. We want cattle who can finally become food. Which reminds me of the scripture, St. Paul says, their God is their belly. And this is Screwtape seeking to use Wormwood, anybody else, to feed on. And that's kind of the, the essential move that we keep talking about. Screwtape wants to turn everything towards himself. Remember in letter eight, he says, uh, the enemy wants servants who can become sons. We want cattle that can become food. And so I think what we see is Screwtape here operating kind of the opposite of John the Baptist. John says, I must decrease and Christ must increase. Uh, Screwtape, I think, just wants to increase himself. I'm very proud of you. I really thought you were going to go for Till We Have Faces about, uh, about the consuming. <laughs> well, I was just going to let you, you know, go ahead and tease out his best book. <laughs> oh, I realized why you think that the Great Divorce is his best book. It's because it so resembles Till We Have Faces, and so I salute you. <laughs> anyway. This idea of the all-consuming love, um, you see that in, in The Four Loves as well and, and everywhere else. So yeah, you actually see it in, in Great Divorce, where they want... Uh, Lewis talks about it in Experiment and Criticism. You can either receive a book or use a book. Mm -hmm. And when you receive a book, you're turning outward and you're letting the book be the book and you're entering into what the author has written. When you use a book, it's more about doing it for your own pleasure. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's some of what's going on here where he wants to have this indissoluble union with him. So what happens next? Well, the real news in this letter is that the patient has fallen in love. Hmm. And Wormwood is in trouble for several reasons. Firstly, because the woman went unmentioned in the report which he sent to his uncle about the women in the patient's neighbourhood. But also because Screwtape has looked at their files and they've discovered that the patient's new squeeze is horribly holy. And, And this is the quotation of the week that you read earlier. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian, a vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery, blah. And he just, he just goes off on one, as we would say in England. Yeah. Well, and he says, she makes me vomit. And in light of our discussion that what Screwtape wants to do is consume for his own benefit. I also love how he says, it's the worst kind that he could of love that he could possibly have fallen into. And I think that's because, as, I mean, Lewis doesn't write... Uh, for loves for almost 20 years, but Eros is that love that most um, is most suitable to approach all the other loves. So when you are romantically involved, when you're married, you can also be friends with your wife, philia, they can become storgy affection, they can become your family. And then of course, if you're married for any time, any amount of time, or if anyone's married to me for any amount of time, they're going to find that they stand in real need of the unconditional love that comes from God. So I think that's why Eros is the worst possible kind of love. And all this makes Screwtape very unhappy. Like I say, he rants for quite a while, and he talks about how they would have sent a woman like this to be executed in the arena in the good old days. 
But even then, he laments that she wouldn't be much use to them even there, because although she looks seemingly weak, she would have most likely have offered a courageous martyrdom. You know, I have no evidence of this, but I'm mindful of uh, reading Felicity and Perpetua. These are two mm -hmm. third century Christian martyrs who were gleeful about the idea of going and facing the lions and uh, and and joyful at the fact that they were chosen to to be martyred. And it's a whole different economy going on that I'm sure Screwtape can't understand. But he knows he hates it. <laughs> uh, Screwtape seems particularly irritated at the thought that she would find him, Screwtape, funny. What do you think that comment's about? Um, you know, I, I have to go back to the opening epigraphs where, uh, remember, Martin Luther said that the best way to drive out the devil is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. And uh, Thomas More said that devil, that proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. And so I think that one of the things that uh, Screwtape wants to do is make himself appear more important than he is, to puff himself up. And when we find people who are doing that, it's hard not to find them a little ridiculous. I think that um, her finding him funny tears down the the kind of binary, you know, good versus evil that people often think of with the devil, that the devil and the Lord are are equal and opposing forces. But the devil is tiny, right? If hell is only a, gr a grain of sand on the shorelands of heaven, as Lewis portrays in The Great Divorce, the devil must be even smaller than the grain of sand. And that she can see through his smoke and mirrors and his disguise and find him funny must certainly be infuriating. Beautiful. I really like that, yeah. Now, at the end of the rant, Screwtape calls the patient's girlfriend a filthy, insipid little prude, so someone that is uh, averse to sexuality. But he then says, and yet ready to fall into this booby's arms like any other breeding animal. Why doesn't the enemy blast her for it if he's so moonstruck by virginity, instead of looking on there, grinning? <laughs> Did you catch that pun? I didn't catch it ever until I read it carefully for this week. Moonstruck and virginity. Artemis is the goddess of uh, virginity, and she's also the goddess of silver and the moon. And so uh -huh. there's Lewis sneaking in some stuff right there. Um, and she's, as the goddess of chastity, I think that's bothering Screwtape all the more. <laughs> but it's kind of funny because it's almost like Screwtape doesn't like the idea of virtuous sex. Again, he wants it in, into a binary. It's like, well, okay, fine. Then, you know, God can be a fan of virginity. Then he can only be a fan of virginity. Or he can be a fan of the body and then only the fan of, of, of sexual congress. And it's like, no, no, it's everything in its right place. Come on, Screwtape, you know this. You have to twist things. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it makes me mindful of Marlowe's Faustus. Uh, where Faustus has all the power in the world given given it by this devil Mephistopheles, and Faustus wants to marry Queen Helen, who is the face, of course, that launched a thousand ships. That's where that line comes from. But the devil guides Faustus away from marriage and says, just make her your concubine because the devil doesn't want Faustus going to church and participating in a sacrament. Right. And so he's trying to twist all of those things. And that's what it reminds me of. This idea of virtual sex, this idea that sex belongs to God, like Lewis says in mere Christianity, that it's Christianity that is the religion that celebrates the body. Um, this is, uh, doesn't make Screwtape happy at all. Now, in the next section, Screwtape switches from complaining about the girl to complaining about God. 
And he says that God is a hedonist at heart. So a hedonist is normally someone who thinks that pleasure is the only intrinsic good. Now, I don't think Screwtape thinks that God really believes that pleasure is the only intrinsic good. But I do think he believes that what he calls those fasts and vigils are only a facade. Yeah, he's this idea of this immediate sense pleasure um, is, is what Screwtape's about. And he can't imagine anybody giving up sins of the flesh for any good reason. I think that uh, Lent properly done really not only angers the enemy, but also confuses him. Why would you not indulge in all of these things? And uh, because it's much harder to, um, to, I think, be attacked by the flesh when you're denying it. I don't think it's the prude that Screwtape doesn't like. It's the prudent the person who does the right thing in the right degree at the right time. That's what he doesn't like. He doesn't like that sort of thinking. And remember, Screwtape wants us to take anything that we have and then make it, put it out of place, out of proportion, right? Sex is not bad, but it's only not bad within a certain number of parameters, right? And so he wants us to take all of those pleasures and make them excessive. Now, Screwtape says that underneath the asceticism are pleasures. He says that God makes no secret of this. And he quotes Psalm 16, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Screwtape just thinks all of this is vulgar. And he, he, can, he complains that God is ignorant. He just doesn't understand what Screwtape calls the high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. <laughs> or which we stoop, maybe. Um, yeah, I think that he's, it's the opposite, of course, here of the beatific vision of Dante's vision of Beatrice. And this vision of Beatrice and her beauty and his love for her guides him through hell and purgatory and into heaven, but he never consummates with Beatrice. You know, it's always this distance between them, but it's this kind of, this, and, and I think that this is part of why Lewis loves Dante so much, this idea of longing that purifies right? A longing that would give itself away. Lewis talks about this in The Four Loves. We praise thee for thy great glory, right? Thank you, Lord, that you have a goodness, even if I can't uh, approach it. And so this, uh, this totally confuses uh, Screwtape, who's, uh, who's certainly only wants to use everything and everyone for his own good. And it's funny that he regards the miserific vision as high and austere, uh, it, it, they're just not words that you would think a devil would be a fan of, high or austere. And that's probably because it's neither of these things. And when, contra when contrasted with the beatific vision, the vision of God, it, it's nothing, as you say. Well, and the warning from the preface comes here clear. We must remember that the devil is a liar uh, and doesn't always say what he means. Now, my favorite section in this letter comes up next. Screwtape writes, God has filled the world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. And I love this section because what strikes me about this list is how ordinary virtually all of these activities are. They're not about lots of material possessions or high-octane activities, except maybe one of them. Uh, but they are very everyday they're, they're just a natural part of life. And Screwtape says that humans can indulge in these wonderful things anytime. Well, and we take, I think, the ordinary pleasures for, for granted. When you talk about washing, I think of all my friends in Texas, where 
Uh, we're we're just out of a week where even taking a shower was an impossibility for all of them. I think it also helps me to be mindful of how much God has graciously supplied. And if I am willing to see it, there are these pleasures and gifts um, from God uh, everywhere. And so I think part of what Paul's getting at when he says pray without ceasing is, thank you, Lord, that I have hot water and soap where I can wash my hands. Thank you that I have all of these things where it didn't have to necessarily be like that. The best shower of my life was when I was back in England. I was living in Cheltenham at the time, which is in a depression. It's like at the bottom of the valley, basically. And we had really heavy rainfall. And so everything was messed up because there was flooding. But it also knocked out the water water purification plant. And so we didn't have water for about a week and a half. My first shower, once that was over, best one of my life. Never be more grateful for water. And I think that that's one of the things that Lewis, it's what I call, chucks us under the chin, helps us to see the higher higher view. Think of all of those things that you do in a normal day. And instead of feeling guilty for them or ignoring them, think about what they, how much they are gifts to be able to put on clean, clean clothes, to be able to sit in a chair that's comfortable. Um, think about how each of these ordinary things are pleasures that God gives us. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Orthodox Jewish tradition. They have blessings for all of these things. When you wash your hands, when you eat some bread, these, there, are, there are blessings to God thanking him for this goodness. Yeah, it's a good acknowledgement. It's a good reminder and, and typical of Lewis to, to point out that Screwtape would like us to forget those things. And so I'm sure he hates what we're doing right now. And I'm actually also reminded of something that George MacDonald said. He said that the goal is to have every meal be a Eucharist, mm. which for anyone from a sacramental uh, tradition, we, we often think about the sacraments and rightly so. But I love McDonald's idea that these things are also meant to point us back to our quote unquote secular day and transform that as well. It's, it's, it's not meant to be like a two story universe with God time and then everything else It's meant to suffuse and transform. It's all God time. It's all God's gifts. And I think that that's part of what Malcolm Geith's poetry has done so much, is to remind us of heaven in the everyday. Remind us that every little meal remembers Christ. And we don't know exactly what he meant. I mean, I'm in seminary and we're studying this stuff. And we don't know exactly what Jesus meant when he says, whenever you drink it, Whenever you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. And yes, he absolutely meant the Holy Sacrament, but I'm not sure that he didn't mean to some degree, whenever you eat or drink, remember that he has loved us so much to create hunger in our own, uh, in our own bodies and the means to fulfill that hunger. And even as we are, uh, some of us are experiencing Lent, uh, one of my priests last Sunday preached a, a lesson on being full and being empty. And even the gift of being hungry, and this is Lewis again, this is why I keep coming uh, back to him is because he's got so much wisdom. He said, taken in the right mood, even a missed meal can become a voluntary fast. And so our pains find resolution and purpose in him. Our pleasures find resolution and purpose in him. Our hungers and their fillings are all in him. And, uh, and uh, poor Screwtape, he's got so few tools to work with. <laughs> well, Screwtape then goes on and elucidates a point which we've made many times throughout this collection of letters. 
Screwtape says, everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Mm. And this, I think, deserves emphasis. If there's, if there's one thing that's really worth getting out of the Screwtape letters, it's the fact that the world is packed full of goodness and gifts of God. And this has been a teaching of the historic church. I recently came across this quotation from St. Maximus the Confessor. And he wrote, Nothing created by God is evil. It is not food that is evil, but gluttony. Not the begetting of children, but unchastity. Not material things, but avarice. Not esteem, but self-esteem. <laughs> you can't say that to people in the 21st century. Ooh. He says, It is the misuse of the things that is evil, not the things themselves. You know, it's an important reminder that God created everything, and the enemy will twist everything uh, into, uh, into his own purposes. That's part of why Screwtape doesn't bat an eye when his patient starts going to church. He's like, ha, 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 I can certainly twist going to church. You know, and many, many of the atheists that I have met along the way are not atheists because they have thought through and done the philosophical reading. Some, some are, but many of them have been hurt by Christian people and then, you know, kind of end up in that camp. Well, people are going to hurt people. God and, and the enemy is certainly going to be at church and try to make me distracted and try to make me critical and try to make me judgmental. You know, the enemy is going to kind of keep at it, but the great encouragement, and I learned this first from Lewis and Screwtape, is that uh, once we're aware of a certain technique that's working, as soon as we recognize it, call it out, commit it to prayer, the enemy will stop that. He'll try something else, but we can uh, win those little, little hills in the battle uh, of the daily life. Now, speaking of pivoting, he pivots back from talking about God and how terrible he is to talking about the girl and how terrible she is. And he points out all the problems with this relationship. In particular, he really doesn't like this woman's friends and family. Uh, they're just repugnant to screw tape. And he describes the house in which she lives as one that reeks of that deadly odor. He says that the gardener who arrived recently, he's starting to smell of it, that this also happens to short-term house guests and even to the dog and cat. <laughs> That's great. What do you think he specifically means when he talks about this deadly odor? What is it? You know, I think this odor is virtue. Um, and I've mentioned here before that Lewis establishes this pattern. The development of a virtue happens in this way. An action repeated becomes a habit, and a habit repeated becomes a virtue. And so if I want to be a kind man, it's incumbent upon me to do kind actions, to do kind things to people, and then to do them repeatedly until they become a habit so that that habit kind of soaks into me and then kindness becomes the kind of odor that comes off of me. And so when I think of odor, I always think of kind of the virtue. What does somebody smell like in terms of their person? And um, even the dog and the cat. And Lewis, I think, is speaking, speaking from, from experience. Well, Walter Hooper was fond of telling the story of old Tom, the mouser, uh, a cat that Lewis had who had lost all his teeth, yet Lewis made his housekeeper uh, debone fish uh, three times a week for old Tom because he was a pensioner. He was a, a retired veteran. And that Lewis would even show kindness to the cat 
Uh, I think that's what he's talking about is this kind of odor of virtue, of good humor, of love, patience, peace, joy, you know, whatever is noble, whatever is, if there's anything excellent, think on these things. I think that's what Lewis is referring to. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I like it because connecting it to habits, habits take time to develop. And when I think of odor, I think of marinade. I think of something sitting in the pan or the oven for hours, slowly simmering away with a smell soaking, with all of the tastes uh, soaking into the food. And the entire house is filled with this glorious smell over the course of an afternoon or a morning. You know, it'll never make it into the translations, but I think that that's an excellent translation of the Greek word bautizo. Um, it's where we get the word baptism but it means to dip like you would take a piece of white pine wood and dip it into brown dye. And so I think that the next time I see baptized, I'm going to think about marinated. <laughs> I think uh, that that's better. Uh, I think one of the phrases I had in season two is that Christianity is a marinade, not ketchup. You can't just quickly squirt it on at the end. No, no. <laughs> it's all about that deep marinade. Absolutely. Yeah. It has to soak in. And I think that it's soaked into her house and that's what, that's what Screwtape's objecting to. Mm. Now in previous letters, Screwtape has been utterly confused by the philosophy of heaven, namely love. And he seems rather confused by this woman's friends and family just as much. He writes, the house is full of the impenetrable mystery. We are certain it is a matter of first principles that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others. We can't find out how. They guard as jealously as the enemy himself the secret of what really lies behind this pretense of disinterested love. <laughs> you know what he's thinking about here, I believe? Um, it's right, well, he publishes it in 41, so it may be a little bit early, but uh, he publishes Out of the Silent Planet in 38. So by right now, and he and he writes the foreword to that hideous strength by 43. So Lewis is probably writing Paralandra right around now, or maybe writing that hideous strength. And it reminds me of the, um, of the community of St. Anne's on the hill, um, of this house that has this mystery of love that's, that's shot through. And so I think this is an echo, either, either an echo forward or, or an echo backward. And also what happens in that house? The gods come and dwell with them. Absolutely. And there's disinterested love. Uh, one of the things I meant to say in the episode with Dr. Jason Lapoyavi about Screwtape's inability to understand the logic of love, it, it reminds me of a couple of translations do this. I think the King James and the NASB. In John 1.5, it speaks about the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not grasp it or comprehend it. There's, there's something about goodness that Screwtape just doesn't get. You know, I'm looking that up right now as we, as we speak and the light in the darkness shines and the darkness it has not overcome. Let's mm -hmm. see what that word is. Most translations that I've read have some concept of overcoming. Yeah. Seize, tight, hold of, arrest, capture, uh, appropriate, catch, overtake and comprehend. So comprehend more than just kind of I understand, but it has grabbed my whole consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he's referring to. Now, I've got a question for you. Have you ever encountered a house like this? Like the one of the patient's girlfriend? Yeah, you know, there have been many. 
Um, and it's not so much the house as it is the Christianity that is, uh, that's within them. Um, I think of my old youth pastor back when I was in Nashville, Scott Rowley and his wonderful wife, um, and, uh, a little turbulence that happened. And then 20 minutes later, everybody's happy again. And the kids are, you know, uh, having, having received some correction are now, uh, snuggled up on mom's lap. Um, the house of uh, Simon Barrington Ward, Bishop Simon, who sat next to Lewis for years at Maudlin College. Uh, and I was blessed to go visit him with Malcolm Geit one day. And the holiness that filled his house, um, his wife at 80, kneeling on the, on the floor to slice our coffee cake um, for us as we were having tea and the blessing that he gave. And it just was, it was just I felt concussed after spending a couple of hours in that house because of the holiness that just kind of echoed through there. And so I hope that my house has a little small echo or odor of that. <laughs> or at least the coffee cake. <laughs> I would take the chocolate coffee cake for sure. <laughs> yeah, for me, the house that jumps to my mind is the house of my first godson, Johnny. His family, they were my small group leaders at the church I went to back in England. And their house, I would just describe it as always filled with life. There was never a dull moment. It was organized chaos. And there was always something going on. There was always excitement and joy and enthusiasm about life. Hmm. I, that also reminds me of Tolkien, right? Um, of, uh, of the house of Elrond. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, whether what you liked was drinking or sleeping or <laughs> singing or let's see, uh, Elrond's house was perfect. Whether you liked food or sleep or storytelling or singing or reading or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasure, pleasant mixture of them all. Oh my gosh. If I have any blessing that could be said over my house, I hope that that's, that's what my house is like. Uh, I once knew someone who's pastor, uh, they actually named their house Lothlorien because they wanted to be their house to be a place of healing. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, I have just received, uh, there's a fantastic gift behind me on the couch uh, uh, from Diana Glyer, and I think that she did it herself. I've got this um, big wooden uh, stained cedar or, or redwood or something, this big uh, uh, plaque uh, in wood, and it says in Tolkienish script, "No admittance here except on party business." <laughs> and so that's a that's an incredible gift from her, and I can't wait uh, when I get through a seminary to have that uh, have that over our house. We also have a sign over Kristen's study called "Spare Um," mm -hmm. and uh, a sign over the walk-in closet called "Wardrobe." Uh, so, but yeah, to have these houses where those things happen, where there's lots of good books and where there's lots of good places for people to sit and always something that smells nice uh, on the stove. Um, I've been in a few houses like that and aspire to have one myself. The only thing your description was missing was naturally good cups of tea. Good but cups of tea and uh, a nice shelf of, uh, of, of malt. Screwtape goes on to talk about this house, and he describes the house and the garden of vast obscenity. And he says that it has a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven, the regions where there is only life, and therefore all that is not music is silence. Mm, where does that quotation come from, David? It comes from, I looked this up, it's The Hands of the Father, which is volume one of George MacDonald's Unspoken Sermons, which is on my to-do list. And you actually also find it in the anthology that Lewis produced of MacDonald's works. 
And Screwtape, he riffs on this idea of music and silence, and he says that he hates them both. <laughs> uh, and he says that in hell, there are neither of those. He says all that has been occupied by noise, noise, the grand dynamism, and you already read it far better than I did in your alternative quote of the week, so I'm not going to try. But why does Screwtape care so much about music, silence, and noise? You know, it's a wonderful question. And by the way, if if I read it at all well, it was because I was um I was imitating Brent, the wonderful actor who who now embodies screw tape in, in Fellowship for Performing Arts, Screw Tape on Stage. And of course, before him, Max McLean's uh fantastic Brent Harris and Max McLean's embodiment of screw tape. And so it's just me channeling them. Um Music and silence. Uh, I did a re- retreat once, actually, about uh, screw tape and about music and silence. And uh, Lewis, of course, was devoted to music. He loved it. Um, he didn't play, but he was a, a as as a thoughtful a critic of music as he was of, of of books. He saw many performances at the Hippodrome in Belfast with his father. And Warney was particularly particularly devoted to music and would actually arrange concerts on Sunday evenings. I believe it was Sundays. He would write up a little libretto, a little book of, of what he was playing. And on the phonograph, he would play different, different cuts. Um, I guess his iPod wasn't working that day. Um, (laughs) And it was from, I think it was, and Michael Ward talks about this beautifully in Planet Narnia. I think it was Warney who brought Gustav Holst's The Planets to Lewis's attention. And that's some of what Lewis was listening to as he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia. I think music has the possibility of transporting us and touching us in a way that almost nothing does. I think the only thing that may touch us in a similar, with similar intensity is smell. Um, and I wish that we had a recording system of smells like we have of, uh, <laughs> uh, of music. And then silence is something that I have uh, been exploring, especially here in seminary. I took a course on contemplative prayer and have right to the left of me right here, my little iconostasis and a, a chance to just uh, to kneel and to be silence. I th- si- silent. Um, I think that that's incredibly lacking in our noisy world and deliberate music, especially music that reminds us of what St. Paul says, anything that is pure, anything that is lovely. And silence where the voice of God can really speak. I was just reading about it this morning in Howard Thurman, having that moment of silence. And Henry Nowen talks about the Desert Fathers and how silence is like being able to carry a little cell around with you, a cell of contemplation where a monk would sit and pray. And so what about you? How do these, these things strike you? I, no, I would agree with all of that. I, I was actually reminded as you were talking, one of my friends, Mike, he was from a more evangelical background. Uh, but he took holy orders in the Church of England, and he messaged me uh, a week or so before he was going on a silent retreat for the first time. And he was trying to hide it, but he was really nervous. <laughs> so he reached out to his Catholic friends, like, what are they going to do? What's it going to be like? And I told him, you're going to come back from this wishing that you could have stayed longer, and you're going to wish you could have more silence in your life. Mm-hmm. I've been reading, as I mentioned, uh, Howard Thurman and his wonderful book, Meditations of the Heart. And just this morning, I read how good it is to center down, to sit quietly and see oneself passed by. 
Um, a deeper note which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered, our spirits refreshed, and we move back into the terrific, or into the traffic of our daily round, with peace of the eternal in our step. How good it is to center down. And so especially in our world surrounded by the internet and um, everything screaming for our attention, I encourage you and I encourage myself and of course our listeners to take, a, take some time to draw a breath, to create space and stillness um, that we don't have in our modern world and to let the voice of God speak inside of that. I think it will drive the devil crazy and that's a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can't help, whenever... Whenever anyone talks about silence, I can't but think of Jared Manley Hopkins. My favorite poem of his is The Habit of Perfection. And my wife gave me a book of his poetry. Uh, he, there he says, Shape nothing lips, be lovely dumb. It is the shut, the curfew sent, from there where all surrenders come, which only makes you eloquent. That there is something that when we are quiet, we can hear the voice of God. And I think that's the other deal with music. When you hear music, your spirit soars. It just does that naturally. I remember there was a video, oof, 10 years ago now, probably. And they were talking about music therapy with people who are either very old or they had Alzheimer's or similar kind of degenerative diseases. And after they had played the music that they loved, it was almost like they woke up. And they knew every word. And yeah, no, I'd seen that video. That's marvelous. You know, it reminds me of that Robert Frost poem. He says, now close the windows and hush all the fields. If the trees must, let them silently toss. No bird is singing now. And if there is, be it my loss, right? To shut all the, 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 the sounds out. Maybe even shut off this podcast and give God a chance to speak. Then turn the podcast back on. Yeah, we're, we're, we're nearly done. You can shut off in a moment. <laughs> but I think that that's a very helpful reminder for me anyway. Well, in that case, let's wrap up the book by talking about the funny episode that happens at the end. Because Screwtape is in mid-castigation when the sentence breaks off and we're told that in the heat of composition, I find that I've inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. I am accordingly dictating the rest to my secretary. My question for you is, why does this transformation happen and what can we learn from it? You know, I'm not in, entirely sure, um, but he just gets so apoplectic. Um, I think that some of that um, transformation is in Milton. Mm -hmm. um, and Aaron Smildy is a marvelous Dutch scholar and his site, I heartily encourage you to, to, to check out louisiana.nl. Um, and he talks about um, the, this kind of transformation and that, that uh, Screwtape just kind of loses his mind and turns into this, uh, this centipede. I, I think it's too early to have reminded me of Gregor Samsa in Kafka's Metamorphosis. Um, but uh, he just he becomes this kind of beastly thing and he can't even control himself. What did you make of that? I definitely agree with you about Milton. Uh, I looked it up. It's in book 10 of Paradise Lost, the demons who raged against God are turned into snakes as a punishment. And it's clear from what Screwtape goes on to say that he rejects this idea. Uh, the other book that I was put in mind of was a picture of Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm. In terms of Dorian's soul is manifested in the picture. Well, in this case, Screwtape's soul, it, or 
the demonic equivalent uh, is manifested in his transformation into a centipede much like eustace who what what did he do he lay down on a dragon's horde with dragonish thoughts in his heart well when screw tape is filled with this anger he just can't control himself anymore and what is inside comes outside hmm well if you had read the great divorce a little better um <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the opposite of this kind of downward transformation that you see in screw tape it, it happens to the um uh to the horse who becomes uh the winged horse or to uh, to the to Fletch uh the horse in in uh, the last or in magician's nephew but this horse that uh, or the the red uh demon that becomes a horse that the man can ride hmm. starts off as a lizard is killed yep the red lizard yeah and then transforms into this thing. And so we are all in the process of transformation. And these things, um, these emotions that we have, if they are selfless, will be transformed into something higher. But if they're selfish, will be transformed into something lower and, and, and mindless and monstrous. And so these, I think these trans transformations have many echoes throughout Lewis. Yeah, I would say it's just heavenly and hellish creatures all over again. And it's just telling you that you can be hellish and become even more hellish. Now, earlier I said that Screwtape rejects Milton's understanding that the demons were turned into snakes as a punishment. He says that he much prefers George Bernard Shaw's understanding. He calls him Pashaw. <laughs> and he speaks out, Transformation proceeds from within and is a glorious manifestation of the life force which our father would worship if he worshipped anything but himself. <laughs> and so... For people that are just dropping in, we've spoken about George Bernard Shaw before. He was a playwright and he's a philosopher, and he was an enthusiast of the life force, which we've mentioned quite a few times in the show. The sort of an impersonal force that drives everything forward. And so Screwtape sees this transformation into a centipede as a life force-like experience where he is uh, uh, driven into a more glorious manifestation, although apparently one that can no longer hold a pen. Oh my goodness. Um, and that's, you see this life force reference uh, come up in Mere Christianity too, uh, in book one there. And so uh, I love the the P-S-H-A-W. Um, unless you have done good reading as a, as a child, um, it's kind of a British expression, a dismissive expression, ex expression right? Like, mm. I don't make much of, much of this. Yeah. And so I think it's a... Pshaw. <laughs> and I think that it's uh, Lewis may be slamming, uh, slamming Shaw a little bit. Of course, Shaw and Chesterton were, were great and famous enemies. Oh, frenemies, really. They were, they were friends, but they debated a lot. Uh, the, the one thing I thought was funny when I was thinking about this was that uh, Shaw, at least to my mind, he's best known for Pygmalion. Most people might know the film version, My Fair Lady, which interestingly is actually about a transformation, a transformation from a flower girl into a classy lady, a princess. Mm -hmm. And where where screw tape is clearly being transformed into something lower, he you know he accepts it as something higher. It's how, it's how much he deludes himself. <laughs> and in the centipede form, he says he's even more anxious to see his nephew and unite him to himself, which is all kinds of creepy. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's consumptive. It's 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 making use of it. Um, and so yeah, poor uh, poor Wormund. But I don't think I pity him much more than I do his uncle. <laughs> uh, there was one bit at the end I, I wanted to get your thoughts. The letter signed for his abysmal sublimity under Secretary Screwtape, T E B S etc. I went looking for what the T E might stand for, 
And the best suggestion I came across was Tempter Emeritus. Hmm. Any ideas? Yeah, I, I, no ideas at all. Um, and I don't think that Lewis really addresses it. And so um, certainly he's um, trying to prop up, prop himself up, and and show all of his titles. But no, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it's a backhanded reference to T. E. Lawrence, but uh, I think that that's probably a big stretch. Well, listeners, if you have any idea about what the TE and BS might really stand for, I have some thoughts about the BS, uh, please write us an email and let us know. Well, let's wrap things up with unscrewing screw tape. What have you got for us? You know, uh, I think my, uh, my main do uh, is uh, do embrace music and do embrace silence and don't give, give a voice to all of the noise. Um, it's appalling when my iPhone tells me how many uh, hours a day I averaged last week on, <laughs> on my phone. Um, it's appalling. I should turn that off or I should maybe just put my <laughs> phone down. Um, and so I think be deliberate about what you allow into, uh, into and before you. Uh, the scripture says, I've allowed no unclean thing before my eyes. And uh, would that I had a day like that. So be deliberate about what you, uh, what you allow into the precious gates of your senses. What about you? I had four more. Do find yourself a spouse who makes screw tape mad. <laughs> and be a spouse uh, that would make screw tape mad as well. And that's a good reminder. If you're married right now, um, I imagine that your spouse probably does something that annoys you. What can you do not to be annoyed by that or to forgive that? What thing, what little grudge are you holding? What little habit of uh, personal selfish privilege are you clinging to? And how could you maybe let that go? And what can you do to serve your spouse today? My next one was, do foster a strong circle of virtuous friends. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Very biblical. Do remember that God made a world packed with goodness. Mm -hmm. I would say look for those ordinary pleasures and receive those ordinary pleasures. Um, one of the pleasures I'm fond of, of talking about when I, when I speak is that when I itch and I scratch the itch, it goes away. Can you imagine being so constructed where an itch would never go away? Um, be mindful that God has showered you with good things. Yes. Don't be like Orwell, who wants to reject all of the good. Th oh, my goodness. Look what you've done to me. I keep quitting till we have faces. All right. Last one. Final one. Don't turn into a giant centipede. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's not. some practical wisdom we can all get behind. Absolutely. Yeah. Turn from yourself. Turn towards others. Reach out um, and love God and love your neighbors. You'll fulfill the law of Christ in so doing. Thanks to all of our top tier supporters, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. You can find us on all of the show's social medias, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, and you can pick up t-shirts and shirts on our website, pintsofjack.com slash shop. And I am one step closer to producing the Pints of Jack coffee mug. It is nearly here. Good. Make sure that it's a good big one. I don't, I don't like six or eight ounces of coffee. I like 10 ounces of coffee. <laughs> there and is not one big enough to suit me. No. And then, you know, if it's a bad day, I can use that big one for scotch. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, we look forward uh, to you joining us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.